Good morning and welcome to the well here at STSA. Thank you for joining us on a beautiful sunny Sunday, the greatest Sunday of the year because the day where we celebrate one hour of extra sleep. And as a priest, I don't know why we don't do this extra hour of sleep more often. Like we should choose like once a month to just do this because the church is packed, the sun is out. Nats won the World Series. It's a great, great, great Sunday. And also it's a great Sunday because you're here in the middle of this series called Blind Faith. We're in part three of a series where we're talking about something that we kind of take for granted as Christians that if you've been in the church long enough, you kind of just take it for, for granted and just kind of assume like faith is just one of those things that we have. But what we're asking the question here is where does our faith come from? Is faith just something that some people are born with? Some people struggle with their faith, but some people just are like a genetically like inclined to have strong faith. Or where is faith really? How do we get more of it? What's the source of it? Is it truly, as it says up on the screen, is it blind? Now, before we begin, I want to ask you guys a question today. I'm going to ask you the same question at the end. We'll see if you remember it, but I'm going to ask you at the start in a slightly different way. The question is this. Have you ever seen someone? Have you ever been a witness to? Have you ever seen someone? Actually, maybe been someone. Have you ever seen someone put an ideology, an agenda, or rules above people? Have you ever seen someone so focused on an ideology or an agenda, personal agenda or group agenda, or enforcing some set of rules above people. You may, may have gone something like this, may have started just a discussion, maybe a political discussion, discussion about religion, discussion about church, discussion about life, discussion about whatever, and it started off small, and it was kind of nice, it was kind of friendly. Then things started to escalate, and it turned from a discussion to an argument. And then all of a sudden, it became less and less about, you know, the people that are involved, and it became less and less about, you know, uh, about loving, about loving the people that are at stake here. It became more about being right and proving that I'm right and not allowing the other person to be right or making sure that they know that they're wrong. And while you're in that, okay, and you see that person who's just arguing and arguing and they're kind of, they're missing the big picture. They're so focused on their point. They're so focused on their politics. They're so focused on their rules. They're missing the big picture. And you're just like, how can someone be so, how can someone be so blind? How can someone be so closed-minded? How can someone be so callous, so unloving? You're thinking to yourself, how could possibly this ever happen? Have you seen this before? I'll be honest, no show of hands. Have you done this before? Where you get so focused or you've seen someone so focused on being right that you forget what we're discussing in the first place. I gotta be honest, I confess. I've got two priests right here, so I confess in front of, the, front of both priests. Is that I know this feeling. Like, I'll be honest, sometimes this is me. Where especially where this is me, I'll be honest, say in front of my wife right here, is this is at home with me. That I know that I'm a rules guy. I'm a structure guy. I'm an order guy. I'm a notice everything that happens guy. One time I was away for a week. First thing I came home, okay, a week, came home. First thing, I, who moved that towel from there to there? That's like the first thing I said when I walked in the door. Who moved that towel? So that's like, I'm, that's the kind of guy I am. And I know at times, okay, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just being honest, is that I can turn into a drill sergeant at home. And in my mind, when I'm in that mode, like the goal of life, is just to get the house clean, kids in bed, lights off by 10. If I had happened, successful day. If that doesn't happen, unsuccessful day. Just this past week, Marianne was out uh, in the evening, which meant I was at home alone with the kids by myself. Of course, I say that as if I did anything. She prepared dinner and she prepared everything. And even then, like I didn't clean it. She didn't clean it when she come home. But I'm saying I had the kids all by myself. And Marianne comes home and she says, how was the day with the kids? I said, oh, it was great. Everyone was in bed by 9.15. She says, okay, did, you know, did Lizzie eat, you know, what I made for her? I said, I don't have the faintest idea, but whatever dishes, she put it in the sink, so that's success. She's like, how did Michael do on his test? I'm like, test? I don't know about no test, but he finally got that room cleaned up. And I was telling her how husbands don't do this. 
husband, well, don't ever do this. I said how smooth and efficient things were when she's not around. And her response, I know I'm confessing in front of the priest. I'm judging. I don't judge you. You don't judge me, okay? I said to her how smooth and efficient it was when she's not around. And her response was, because nobody talks to anybody. <laughs> I need Marianne. I need Marianne for many things, obviously, okay? But in it, one of the many things I need my wife for is to remind me that efficiency, as great as it is, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's not the goal. That following the rules, the order, the structure, those things are only there to serve the people that are involved. That it's not about the rules. Rules aren't bad. Rules are good. Rules are very good. But when they're used in the proper context to serve and protect the people that they are written for. Everybody agree with me? We're in the middle of a series called Blind Faith. Where we're asking the question, why is it that we should believe? Where does faith come from? And we're looking at one of the greatest believers of all time, St. John, the disciple, the beloved, the one who wrote the fourth gospel. And we're asking him the question, saying, hey, St. John, you tell us. You believed. You believed very strongly. Why did you believe? Were you just born believing? Like, did your parents teach you that, like, dead people rise and, like, you just, it was natural for you? Is it, like, a genetic thing? Are you from, like, the Bible Belt part of Galilee? Is that, like, like why is it that you believe and your faith is so strong? And what St. John is telling us, he's like, look, I'm not telling you that you should just believe for the sake of believing. The kind of stuff that we grew up with is you just have to believe. Just take it by faith. Don't question. He's not saying that. He's, what he's saying is this, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 the epistle that he wrote to the church at the end of his life he says look that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life that life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us what he is saying right here very clearly he's saying i'm not just telling you to believe because of believe i'm not just saying faith because it's blind I'm telling you that I know that Christianity, this is, a, this is a hard thing to accept, that someone died and rose, that someone tells you to follow me that you never met. What he's saying is, I met him. I saw him. I handled him. I touched him. I ate breakfast with him. That's why, like I said last week, Christianity is less religion. Christianity is more history. Christianity is not philosophy or, or, or morality or religion, as if we have like a book that tells us how to behave. No, what Christianity is, is history. It's about a person. It's about an event. about a person who walked on this earth. And no one disputes that he walked on this earth. And he went up on a cross and he died. Then he rose from the dead. It's about a person and a history. And less and less about believe just for the sake of believing. And what St. John tells us right here. says the life was manifested. And that life is eternal life. And he's saying when I saw this person. He's different than any other person. He couldn't think of another word to describe him. He said he is life. What he is, is life. And when he was there, we had life. And before him, we were living, but we didn't have life. And even after he left for a little bit, we were kind of sad, and it was as if the life had been sucked out of us. We had no life. But then he came back, and we were given the greatest kind of life ever. And St. John writes this epistle, and he also writes his gospel, and he says, I want to tell you the story of this person who is life. But here's the key. I'm not telling you the story like a bedtime story. I'm not telling you like a documentary about the life of a great man. I have a purpose in writing my gospel. And he tells us what that purpose is. In the very end of his gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, 
It says, truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What St. John says is, I'm going to write this gospel, and I'm not going to tell you everything you know about Jesus. Remember, like I told you before, John's gospel is written at the very end. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already out there. People knew the stories. So people knew about a lot, like people knew about the birth. John didn't talk about the birth. People knew about the Last Supper. John didn't mention the Last Supper. John is writing later on to kind of fill in the gaps, and he's saying, I'm writing with a very specific purpose. And he organized the gospel around seven signs, not seven miracles, seven signs. Why I say signs is because miracles are just kind of like random acts of kindness. They're not random acts of kindness. They were signs. They were pointing to something. And John wrote his gospel and says, I struggled to believe two, and then I saw one, and then I saw two, and then I saw three, four, five, six, seven. And these signs pointed to who he was and who his identity is. And last week, okay, for those who are here, okay, we, we discussed the first two signs so far. We discussed the wedding of Cana at Galilee, where Jesus came to make all things new, turn the water into wine. Last week, we talked about the nobleman who had the sick son, okay, and that nobleman came to Jesus. And Jesus told him, remember, Jesus told him that funny statement that we said, if you, if you don't understand the context, it's almost defensive. When the nobleman said, please heal my son, please heal my son, Jesus said something which is like a little abrasive. He said what? He said, you people, you people. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you by no means believe. And we looked at that and said, you know what? That's kind of abrasive. But I'm going back to what John's saying. I see the progression is signs believe life. Is that, you know what? Jesus said some crazy stuff when he was on this earth. Jesus said some crazy stuff. And what John is saying is, you know what? If someone comes to you and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never taste death. That's a crazy statement. You should not believe them unless they prove it. If someone comes to you and says that anyone who drinks the water that I will give will never get thirsty again. John said, I can't just accept that because of faith, because of faith. If someone comes to you, Jesus said something crazy. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Ladies and gentlemen, if someone comes to you today and says, before Abraham was, I am, meaning like I was alive before Abraham. If someone tells you that, you call one of three people. First, you call the police. Second, you call the hospital. Third, you call the Psychic Friends Network. Tell them we found one of their missing employees or something like that. Of course you shouldn't believe it unless there were signs. Of course you shouldn't believe if someone says, I have power over death. Why would anyone believe it? But what St. John says is, Jesus came. I'm with you guys. I grew up a good Jewish boy. I was taught the dead people don't rise. I was taught that Moses and Abraham, they came thousands of years ago. So I get it. Like, I get why you struggle to believe. But I know what I saw, and I know what I heard, and I know what what I experienced. And what he's telling us is, I'm going to give you my experience as an eyewitness. And I hope you will take my word for it, and that you will believe, and then you will find your own experience as well. Wedding of Cana at Galilee, that was in the beginning. That was in John chapter 2. That was when Jesus went up, was, is up in Cana, okay, up in the north, did that great miracle, and he traveled down south to Jerusalem. While he was there, he did some stuff, messed up the stuff in the temple, went back home. When he got back home, that's where the nobleman came in. That was John chapter 4. Now we go to John chapter 5 for the third sign. Third sign is known as the healing of the paralytic or the healing on the Sabbath or the healing by the pool of Bethesda. After this, John chapter 5, verse 1. After this... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Not part of the story, but why do you think there's so much detail? What do you, what, do you see this detail? A sheep gate, okay, and the five porches. Why do you think so much detail? What is, what's John's point right here? Why is there so much detail? Because again, eyewitness. He's telling you, I'm not telling you stuff that I heard, the stuff that I, the rumors. I'm telling you what I saw. I was there. Five gates, sheep gate, five pools, sheep gate, Bethesda. Verse 3, in these 
lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. John gives a lot of detail in his gospel about the specifics of the story because he was a witness. But thank God he didn't give too many details about this. Because I cannot think of a worse place to be on planet Earth than by this pool. How would you think, what do you think you'd see? What do you think you'd smell? What do you think you'd hear if you went by a pool, a small little lake, and around them were blind people, lame people, paralyzed people, sick people? I imagine the smell would be of death, of rotting flesh. I'm sure there were dead bodies kind of strewn all around. I'm sure the sounds as you approach the camp you wouldn't hear clapping and singing. You'd hear moaning and groaning, groaning and aching and pain. And I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure there are people who lay there. We're going to see the, 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 the star of today's gospel here, the, the main er character. He said he's been there for 38 years, okay? So in theory, there was other people who have been there 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and probably some people just kind of died while they were sitting there. And you know what? No one came to visit them. No one asked about them. You would avoid this area like the plague. You know why? Because it probably contained the plague. This was an area that family didn't go see, that, that officials wouldn't go see. The only person that I can imagine, the only thing I can imagine was that once a week or once a month, or I don't know how often, that a soldier or some kind of guard or some kind of low-level employee of the state had to come in there with a big wheelbarrow or some kind of, of, of cart to just cart off the dead bodies. And that was the only person that would visit this place. This was the worst place to be on the planet. But someone, other than this Roman official, actually was rumored to have visited it regularly. That we see in verse 4. The rumor was that an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Let's understand the context. We're not living in 2019, okay, when we're reading this. We're living back in the first century. Today we have hospitals and we have doctors. Back then they had doctors, but doctors weren't very valuable. Doctors, weren't, worst of all, weren't very common. Okay, only the rich people had doctors. And secondly, they weren't very valuable. Because one of the rules of the Roman Empire, okay, they had, the, they had their, their weird kind of religious beliefs or their, their beliefs in, in their gods. And one of the rules was you were not allowed to examine a dead body. So a doctor could examine you while you're alive but once you died the doctor couldn't do anything so the doctor didn't really know much okay because their hands were really tied because by the time they got there the person would die they couldn't invest they couldn't do any kind of autopsy or anything like that so really back then the doctors weren't really of much value back then if you were sick you had two options for healing you had two options you had number one you had the temple gods Okay, so you go to the, the Roman gods or whatever temple gods or whatever priest or whatever god, and if you got lucky and the gods, like, smiled upon you, find healing, but if not, it stinks for you. The second option you had, which you see right here, is you had superstition. And superstition, which is common at the time, here said that in this pool of water, every so often an angel would come down, stir the water, and the first guy in would get healed. Now, as they have, like, archaeology kind of discovered that the bottom of this pool of Bethesda lies a spring. So what happened, most likely, okay, most likely what happened is the spring at the bottom would, you know, do its spring kind of thing, all right, and then there would be kind of bubbles, and the people thought this was like some kind of angel or some kind of supernatural act. And people would rush in the water. Again, picture the scene. Can you imagine? Can you imagine 
a bunch of sick people, paralyzed people, handicapped people, blind people. And all of a sudden, they hear a, a stirring of the water. And then it was mass chaos to get in that water. Pushing and shoving and get out of my way and pull the other person down because it's only the first person in. So they had every incentive to trip you on the way, to push you down. And I can only imagine, like I'm making this stuff up, I wasn't there, but I can only imagine. I can only imagine. What happens, I don't know, what happens if a blind person gets pushed in the water? What happens if a paralyzed person who can't walk, who can't move his arms? Like, I, I don't want to, I'm sure lots of people drowned. I'm sure some people actually got healed because there's some kind of placebo effect or some kind of mind over matter kind of thing. Like, I'm sure if they're diseased, whatever. But I bet you a lot of people were lying dead at the bottom of that pool, either pushed in or hit in or, or, or a paralyzed person rolled in and wished for the best. This is the worst place on planet Earth. But Jesus looks at this place and says, this is the perfect place to do a sign. So Jesus shows up. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity. And Jesus looks at this man who had this infirmity. And he says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew already that he had been in a condition a long time, he said to him, here's the funniest question on planet. Here's the funniest question. Jesus asked this man a funny question. I'm going to ask you the same question in a second. He said to him, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Sick guy, lying by the pool, waiting for the water. Everyone here is sick. Do you want to be made well? Imagine going to the place to find a whole bunch of homeless people. Would you like a million dollars? Imagine going to a, 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 a mother of an infant. Would you like a night of sleep? Imagine going to a Redskins fan. Would you like a franchise quarterback? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, amen, yes. Like, that's all I want. I dream. I wake up in the morning. I dream of going in that water and getting healed. I think every day, today's the day. This is the day. Someone's going to roll me in. Someone's going to push me in. Somehow, even though I have no legs and I have no hands that I can move and I can't move at all for 38 years, somehow, this is the day that I'm going to make it in that water. So you, Jesus, coming in and saying, do you want to be made well? It's a funny question. This isn't really our, our point for today, but I'll just take a small little tangent. I'll ask you the same question. Do you want to be made well? Because what Jesus reveals to us here is that healing is a choice. I shouldn't say healing is a choice only, but oftentimes healing begins with a choice, or should I say a series of choices. And I would say to you that sometimes don't be so quick to answer the question, do you want to be made well? Because sometimes it is easier to stay sick, isn't it? Sometimes it's easier to stay in our rut, isn't it? It's kind of our comfort zone. It's easier to not get up, and it's easier to not get help because it's easier to blame others. It's easier to make excuses and just kind of be a better person. So what I say to you, like Jesus said to this man, he will never force you to find healing. He will invite you to find healing, but he'll never force it. And the question that Jesus asked that I ask, do you want to be made well? You have bitterness and resentment inside, which is causing for sure, for sure, it's causing all kinds of ailments to your body, to your soul, to your spirit, to your relationships. Do you want to be made well of that unforgiveness? Do you really want to be made well? Are you willing to take a step and act on it? You struggle with an addiction to whatever it may be. Do you want to be made well? Do you really want to be made well? Are you willing to get help? Are you willing to admit? You say you want to fix whatever relationship. Do you really want that relationship to be well? And are you willing to take the steps that it takes to get there? Sometimes people come to me, and I don't allow, I'll tell you what I don't allow. I don't allow when people tell me I can't. I don't like the word I can't. I change it to I won't. Person says, I can't get along with my wife. No, sir. You say the following sentence, I won't get along with my wife. But you don't say I can't. Don't say I can't forgive. No, sir. You say I won't forgive. 
I won't let go. Someone say, I can't get help. I say, no, ma'am. You can get help, but you're choosing not to get help. There's always a step. There's always a step towards healing, is what Jesus tells us right here. But that's not our story. Let's go back to our story. We go, we got this man, 38 years. Jesus comes to him. Why did Jesus come to him? Again, not a random act of kindness. I don't know why. Why did he choose the Samaritan woman? Lots of women, he chose her, he had a plan. Why did he choose Zacchaeus? I don't know, he had a plan. Why of all the people lying by this pool, he picked this man? I don't know, but the point is, Jesus wasn't coming just to do nice acts. He wasn't coming as a secret Santa, just to do nice things, and he ran out of juice, and that's why he was only one guy healed. He had a purpose, he had a mission, and the mission was this man. He comes to this man, asks him, do you want to be made well? The man, automatically, when Jesus asked him this, is thinking about the water. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And of course, we're reading this like we read last week about the nobleman's son. We know all the miracles of Jesus. And here we see this 38-year guy sitting by the paralyzed, sitting paralyzed by the thing. And Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And he's like, yeah, but the water. And you're like, buddy, you got Jesus. This is your moment. Forget about the water. You don't need the water. Haven't you heard? Haven't, don't you know the nobleman's son? Haven't you heard about all the healings? Like, this is your chance. But we're going to give the guy a pass. He's been lying there for 38 years, so he probably hasn't checked out the news recently, so we're going to kind of give him a pass. He hadn't heard who Jesus was, and he's focused on the water. Jesus gives him the benefit of the doubt, and Jesus is like, okay, well, let me tell you. Forget about the water. He leans down, and he whispers something to this guy. The Bible doesn't tell us he whispers it, but I think he whispered it, and I'll tell you why. Jesus said in verse 8, Rise, take up your bed and walk. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Before I tell you how the man responded, how do you think he would have responded? We know the story. So the easy answer is he should have faith and stand up and take it. That's the easy answer. I'll tell you how I think, and I'm making this stuff up. But I know what I see in my eyes. I know what I feel in my heart. So I've said this before. I've heard this before. I think his first thought was probably, I can't. Like, that's why I'm asking you for help rise uh hello jesus i can't like you can ask me to pray to rise you can ask me to think positively but don't you know me don't you know who i am don't you know like isn't it isn't this right isn't this exactly what god does we come to god and we come to faith and we ask for a miracle and he tells us to do the one thing that we can't do I'll do the miracle for you, but you have to. And you're like, but that's the one thing I can't do. And I think that this man, just like us, would have said, Jesus, you ask anything you want and I'll do it. But you can't ask that. Because that's the one thing I can't do. And Jesus, just like he did last week with the nobleman, challenged him. I want you to believe. I want you to trust. I want you, you, me, us, I want you to believe. Believe when I tell you, you can do this. You say, I can't, I can't, I can't. Believe that I say you can. Believe when you say, there's no hope. And I tell you, today's your lucky day. There is hope. This, this is the chance of a lifetime. Believe when you see death all around. And I tell you, I come with life. Believe. Believe tells the man to rise, to do something, take a step, 
Man had no idea what was going to happen with that step. But the man obeyed. Now here's where the story kind of takes off. Follow here. He asked the man to do something, to do some kind of work. And the reason why I stress on the word work is because you're about to see in a minute. It's the work part of this that makes this from a miracle, just a miracle, to a sign about the identity of Christ. Verse 9. And immediately, immediately, the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. The story should end here. We should all live happily ever after. And everything was great. So far, we've had a great miracle. But the sign is what happens next. And that day was the Sabbath. And you can imagine, dun, 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 like fade to black. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Jesus, once again, you know the expression, poked the bear. He poked the bear. Jesus here doing a miracle. Like, just do your miracle and that's it. The man's been sick 38 years. It had to be on the Sabbath. Like, couldn't have waited till Monday. Like, couldn't have come. Like, who cares? Like, it had to be the Sabbath. It's almost as if I see Jesus coming and being like, Sabbath, okay, now let's go. Because Jesus liked to poke the bear. Jesus liked to go straight to the bee's nest and whack it and then run. Actually, no, he wouldn't run. He would face it. We would run, but Jesus poked the bear. And he did the one thing that he knew. Stick it to those Pharisees. But he did it for a reason. This is a sign, not just a miracle. Let's get a little context. The Pharisees. Okay, when it says the Jews, okay, here it doesn't mean all the Jewish people as much as it means the Jewish leaders, specifically the Pharisees. So oftentimes when you say, that, when it says the Jews, don't just look at it as the Jews in terms of the multitudes. It really is focused on the leaders of the Jewish people, which is the Pharisees. These were the hall monitors, okay, of the first century. These are the guys who walked around with their little notepads, okay, and just gave tickets and violations, okay? Like the guys who, you know, they see you, you walk the wrong way, ticket. They see you park the wrong way, ticket. Like these were these guys, and they loved, loved, loved to hide behind the corners, okay, and then come out and be like, ha ha, ticket, violation. They came to this guy. They came to this guy, and they saw him carrying a mat. And you say to yourself, carrying a mat, walking to the temple. Why do you think he was walking to the temple? The guy had been sick 38 years, just had this miraculous healing. He's coming to offer praise to God. He's coming to offer maybe a sacrifice to God. Maybe he was just coming because he didn't know anybody, okay, and there was no one around that was to visit. He just wanted to come and yell, hey, guys, guess what happened? Regardless of the reason why, he was walking to the temple, he was going to do something good. And then these guys give him a ticket for carrying his mat. You say carrying your mat? Again, let's understand the context. How is carrying the mat against the law? In the Old Testament, there are two types of laws. This is important that you understand this. Two types of laws. Follow me here. There's the written law and then the oral law. The written law, called the law of Moses, called the Torah, Okay, that's when Moses went up the mountain. He came down with the commandments and the instructions to build the like the written law. But then there was what's called the oral tradition. And the oral tradition was laws that were created by the people to guard people from breaking this law. And the intention actually is not a bad one. Like we give it a bad name, but I'll explain to you it's not that bad. Think of it like this, is that God gave the people boundaries, okay, and said don't touch here and don't touch here and don't touch here. That's the written law. 
So the oral law, what the people did is they built a fence around the written law, built a fence around it so you couldn't even get close. So they would build a fence so that you would never even be tempted to break the written law. Like, for example, it says, one of the commands, the written law, shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You've heard that commandment. It's one of the ten. What they did is they built a fence around it. And the people, Orthodox Jews to this day, okay, I remember one time I was reading a book by a Jewish rabbi, and I was shocked. They won't say the word God. They won't even write it. I was reading the book. If you read a book by, by a Jewish rabbi, he'll, if he's referring to God, he'll put capital G dash D. And I kept being like, like, this is a lot of typos. Like, you'd think you'd get that one right. Like, it's only three letters. And then I finally realized that that's what they're doing because they put a fence around it. God didn't say you couldn't say his name. He said you couldn't take it in vain. So what they said is, just make sure, just don't let anyone say it. So they built a fence around the law. Another example is that God commands, like a lot of the rules of sanitation and hygiene about what should be washed and when it should be washed. Okay, and those were to protect the people from diseases. God was the first doctor and the first nutritionist, and God was the first everything. So what the people did is they built a law around it, like you had to wash your hands before whatever. So they put a fence around it, and they dictated how much water to use and when to go to your fist, when to go to your elbow or your wrist, when to go to your, your elbow. So they prescribed the exact rules of it. Having those oral traditions is not bad. What's bad is putting them at the same level as the law and not understanding the difference. And you might be thinking, but hey, in the Orthodox Church, don't you have like a lot of oral tradition? And I'd say yes. But again, it's understanding the difference between the two. Like I'll give you an example. Every Sunday, we receive the Eucharist. Right here, right before the well, participate in the divine liturgy, receive the Eucharist. One of the traditions of the church is that when you come to receive the Eucharist, you have that little napkin thing in your hand. Okay, a little handkerchief or napkin, I don't know what it's called. It has a cool name in Arabic. Okay, I'll give you the fun name in Arabic. It's called lefefa. Say lefefa. Lefefa, it's just a fun word to say. Okay, I like to say it. Lefefa. Okay, it's like rhyme, rhyme, rhyme. Okay, everything is cute in Arabic. Lefefa, okay. But it is that little napkin thing. So what we do, okay, is after we receive the body, we cover our mouths with the napkin. And the reason why we do it is we, we receive with such reverence Okay, the body and, and blood of Christ, we receive with such reverence that we cover our mouth. And that way also in case a piece falls, okay, we catch it in there and we put it in our mouth. So it's a good thing. But I'll tell you when it becomes a bad thing is when we make that more important than, than the actual faith and the repentance and the love. So like the rule is good, but the rule is not good if we enforce it to the point that we forget about the people that the rule was made for. That was these guys' problem is they focused on the rule versus the purpose for the rule. They focused on the what, and they missed the why. And that's what Jesus referred to. This is passage from Matthew chapter 15, verse 1 through 6. We'll go through it quickly. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the oral tradition, or tradition of the elders. Look what he says. It says, And the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? You see how they know that it's not the written tradition that they broke. It's the tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread saying they went past the fence. But that doesn't mean that they broke the law. It just means they went past this man-made fence. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? See how the difference, the command of God, the tradition of men, saying you are so worried about them breaking the fence, you ended up breaking something much greater, which is, we'll talk about that in a minute, which is love. For God commanded, saying, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God that he, not, 
then he need not honor his father or mother. Don't worry about that. What that's basically saying is you guys are so focused on the fence, you actually broke this, but as long as you kept the fence, you didn't realize it, so you were so focused on it, you missed that you broke something much greater. We'll talk about that in a second. Verse 6. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Tradition is not bad. Tradition, these fences are not bad, but it's bad if they become the focus as opposed to the law of God. And that's what happened with these people. Let's go back to our story. In our story, there's a paralyzed man, carries his mat on the Sabbath. What's the big deal about carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Well, the rule, the command of God was what on the Sabbath? Keep it holy. Do no work. That's the command of God. No work on the Sabbath. The tradition of men, what they basically did is they created a fence. And they came up with 39 categories. Not 39 things. 39 categories of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And the whole point was, don't let people do that, 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 or that, so we make sure they don't break this. I'll tell you some of the categories. You could not on the Sabbath. These are categories, so there's, like, break it down underneath here. Kneading, K-N-E-A-D, kneading. Baking, unfortunately. Washing wool, drying wool, tanning. I assume that means some kind of leather thing. I don't think it means, like, sun tanning, but maybe it does mean sun tanning. I don't know how you would avoid it. Okay, writing two or more letters, you could not write two or more letters, you could not erase two or more letters, you could not kindle a fire, you could not extinguish a fire. Okay, and thank God that the last one, because of the first one, if you can, that, yeah. And one of the categories, in addition to those, was transporting an object. So they had rules about how much something could weigh for you to carry it on the Sabbath how high it could be, how far you could go. You've maybe read this term in the New Testament, a Sabbath day's journey. Have you heard that word before? A Sabbath day's journey means that if you walked from here to there, you would break the Sabbath so you could only walk a certain distance, okay? You're allowed to walk, I don't know how much it was. Let's say you could only walk, you know, 50 feet or 50 yards. But if you walk 51, you broke it. So a Sabbath day's journey. They were so focused on this man, broke the tradition of the elders, but what they broke was much worse. Because they broke the law of God. He broke the letter, but they broke the spirit. Because the point of the law of God, of keeping holy the Sabbath day, was not to walk more than 50 feet. The point of the Sabbath day was to rest from labor, not to rest from love. The point of the Sabbath was to look at the people and give them a break and make their lives easier not to do the exact opposite, which is what the Pharisees ended up doing in this situation. And that leads us to our key thought. I'm going to say this. I'll say it, put it up on the screen, then I'll explain. Our key thought is this. People are more important than ideologies. People are more important than agendas. People are more important than rules. People. It's about people. People are more important than ideologies. People are more important than agendas. People are more important than rules. And if you will allow me, if you allow me, can I bother you a little bit today? Is that okay? Can I push, can I, can I poke the bear a little bit myself? That's okay? Good. No one said no, so I can. This happens a lot more than we realize. And when I say this happens, easy thing to say is yes, this happens in society. In society. I don't know what society is. Society is a cop out to me. Society does this. Society doesn't do it. We're part of society. I'm not telling you what I see in society. I'm telling you what I see um, with my eyes, what I hear with my ears. And I'm saying that we sometimes get so focused on defending an agenda or a belief or enforcing a rule 
that we ignore the law of God, which is people. And I'll give you some examples. This is when, I'm going to bother some people here today. This is when your political view, that's the way to get everyone's attention, political view. Your political view is more about defending party lines than caring about the people that you're supposed to be caring about. When it becomes more about, well, my party said this, and if he said this, or she said this, and defending party lines and forgetting about the people that it's supposed to be all about. This happens when a certain ideology, when a certain ideology or a certain agenda or a certain rule, be it in the church or wherever it may be, that we become so focused Oh, we have to all follow this. We have to enforce this rule. And it has to be this. We become so focused on the rule that we forget the people that the rule was written for. It's when we're so focused on being right that we will hurt people in front of us with our words and our actions all in the name of being right. And I'll tell you something. Can I bother you some more? This is really hard to see in the mirror. This is really hard to see in the mirror. And I'll tell you why, and I'll prove it to you right now. I'll prove it to you why this is hard to see in the mirror. Because as soon as I said what I said about people versus ideology, people agenda, people rules, and I said what I said, you ought, most of you, I would say most of you, probably were nodding your head saying, I agree with what he said. Most of you agreed with everything that I said. And immediately, most of you thought, who needs to hear this other than you? Immediately. Most of you thought, that's right, give it to them Democrats. That's exactly what's right. Tell them, because that's what they need to hear. And most of you are thinking, that's right. The Republicans today, this is where they lost it, okay? They, some of you are thinking, my father-in-law needs to be here for this one. My, I wish my mother-in-law could hear this. I'm going to send, where's this video? I need to send the link to some. I need someone to hear this. And what I'm telling you is, before you get too excited about who else needs to hear this, we need to look in the mirror. We need to be honest. Because if it's more about rules than people, if it's more about agendas than people, if it's more about ideologies than people, then we made a mistake. We lost something. Because if you're on the wrong side of love, you're on the wrong side of God. If it's more about your agenda, your ideology, your rules, you're at odds with God. Because the scriptures don't give us many definitions of God, point blank, but it gives us one. And St. John in his epistle, when he wanted to come up with something great, say how to describe God in a word. How do you describe God in a word? He said simple. God is love. So if you're on the wrong side of love, you're on the wrong side of God. And that's not a place I want to be. That was the Pharisees. Like, isn't it so clear to see in them this man had been sick for 38 years. 38 years, no hope. 38 years lying there as a miserable person. Jesus heals him. The guy's carrying his mat. So what? Rejoice with the guy. Say congratulations. Ask who it was that did it so that I can go take my sick grandma there. Like, rejoice. Like, you got to be able to see something. Other than, 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 than the carrying of the mat. Like, I liken this to, like, I don't know what to liken this to. I was racking my brain. I liken this to one of your children gets in a car accident, horrible one, and flips the thing, and you find it out, and you run to them, and you say, did you turn off the dome light before you got out of the wrecked car? Like, that's the only thing I can compare this to. Like, who cares about the mat? 
Who cares that he's walking? Okay, just whisper, say, hey, next time do it on the next. Like, okay, whatever. But how can you be, how can you miss this? How can you miss this? You know how you can miss this? Because that's what happens when you focus on an agenda. You focus on an ideology or you focus on a rule. You can miss it. And that's exactly the devil's plan. Is to get us so focused on the nitty gritty, so hung up on our party lines, so hung up on being right that we miss compassion. We miss love. We miss people. We miss the heart of God. Have I bothered you enough yet? No? Okay, let me bother you some more. I don't know, I'm in a feisty mood today. I don't know why, okay? But let me bother you some more. My goal is to make everyone in this room hate me right now. And let me tell you this. Example. There are some people out there who believe in fighting for the rights of the unborn children. Who believe that abortion is murder and it should not be something that is done. And I, for you who say that, I commend you. Absolutely. It has always been the heart. Abortion is not a new thing. Abortion has been as long as there have been people having babies. There's always been people trying to get rid of those babies. And from the beginning of the church, very clear, the church has always said it is our job to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And their church has always been there as a voice for the voiceless. Church doesn't discriminate age, gender, okay? None of that stuff matters. Whether you're 80, whether you're 8, whether you're just coming out the like, church doesn't, doesn't discriminate any of that stuff. And you say, this is the heart of God, and I believe in this, and I say to you, amen, that is the heart of God. But let me tell you what also is the heart of God, or let me tell you what is not the heart of God. To curse, demean, and degrade those who have an opposing viewpoint of you. Because we believe that every person is made in the image of God, we fight for the rights of those who have, cannot fight for themselves. That's our job as Christians. But in, you know what else? The person that opposes your viewpoint is also made in the image of God. So the same dignity that we're fighting for here, we have to be willing to extend here. But to degrade, to remove someone else's dignity in the defense of someone else's dignity, that ain't what God wants. I'll give you another one. There are some people who struggle very much to accept political figures who use crude language and who curse and who have general potty mouths. You say that is unbecoming of the office to which they are elected and I say to you, I agree, absolutely. God doesn't accept that and I don't accept that and you shouldn't accept it. But I'll tell you what else you don't accept. I don't accept you to use the exact same language to criticize. I don't accept you to use your potty mouth and you to curse and you to be crude to say that the other person shouldn't be doing it. Because you know what the scriptures tell us is that no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. No corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. And I think if, if St. Paul was writing it today, he'd say proceed out of your mouth or your thumbs. Because I don't think there's a difference. If we say it with our mouth or we post it on the line. We got to be better. We got to be better. We got to be better. I try to make everyone hate me. Everyone here hate me? Anyone I leave out that did not make someone hate me? Okay, because I got more examples. So I can just let me what you're, what you're into and I'll be happy to insult you as well we got to be better we got to be better it's not insulting it's 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 just we're having fun okay we got to be better 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 because we follow a master who says people first everything else second we cannot lose sight of that it doesn't matter how right you think you are it doesn't matter your agenda your ideology i'm not telling you to change your opinion i'm telling you have your opinion but people first everything else second and we follow a master who created us in his image, and he teaches us the dignity of every human being, whether they agree with us or don't agree with us, whether they share our views or don't share our views, whether they follow our rules or don't follow our rules, rules, everyone is due that dignity. And if you miss this, 
you'll be just like the Pharisees who missed the greatest miracle that ever hit the town, at least so far to date. And they not only missed the miracle with the paralyzed man, but here's even the worst part, and this is important. They accused Jesus of a crime. Why do they accuse Jesus of a crime? Because he was a bad man? Because he broke their rule? He disagreed with their ideology? He didn't follow their agenda? And their litmus test, their litmus test of who is Jesus, they judged him, their litmus test, what they were measuring him against. Does he, listen how horrible this is, does he agree with my agenda? If so, he's from God. If not, he's from the devil. Does he follow my rules? Does he agree with my ideology? And they put themselves in the right and they graded Jesus against their standard. And it led them to this place. Do we do the same? Do we judge people's goodness or badness? Their worthiness, their dignity, based on whether they agree with our views? And before you rush to say, but my view is right, because that's what some of you think. I know what you think, but my view is right. Before you rush to say, let me ask you another question. I'm really going to bother you right now. Is there any chance that your view today could be flawed? Is there any chance? Is there any chance that your view, which you are so sure about, could be wrong? That you may, another time down the road, come back and be like, you know what? I was wrong when I was thinking back then. And for those of you who say, you know what? There's no way my view is wrong. There's no way my view is wrong. Anyone here who's maybe in their 40s, I can prove it to you that you had wrong views. Just think back to you in your 20s. Can you look back to your 20s and say, you can look back, I can look back to my 20s and be like, man, I've grown a lot. I've matured a lot. Like, there's a lot of things. And you sitting there in your 20s, you're like, yeah, that's right. We know. No, let me tell you about your 20s. You're in your 20s, you've got to figure it out. Go back to middle school. Go back to high school. And think of all the dumb things that you used to believe and the thumb, dumb things that you used to say. We've all been in a position, like, this is what life does. Our experiences shape us. We grow. We mature. Our views change over time. So are you willing to risk everything for the sake of a view, which you might not even have 10 years from now, might not even have 20 years from now. Let me tell you what never changes. What never changes is God's view of man. God's view of man is the one constant, that man is made in his image, and man, therefore, has dignity, regardless of his viewpoints, what that is. And this is like the gospel in a nutshell right here, John three 16. You've all heard this verse before. Help me fill in the blank because I'm not sure what it is. It says, for God so loved the Republicans that he gave his only begotten son. Is that what it says? For God so loved the Democrats. For God so loved the Trump followers or the Trump haters. For God so loved the men and God so loved the women. For God so loved the rich. For God so loved the poor. For God so loved the black. For God so loved the white. Like, is that what it says? What does it say? Help me out. It says, for God so loved the, the world. That includes the people who don't agree with you. That includes the people who break your rules. That includes the people who don't follow your agenda. Like, I know that's hard to believe. Because we today, I have my tribe, I have my agenda, I have my ideology. Anyone over there, God doesn't love them. God doesn't care about them. They're the worst people. Well, that's not what the scripture says. I would love it if it said that. That'd make my life easier. Just stick to my own. But that's not what it says. It says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Is that God loved people who had a different set of beliefs. God loved people who didn't agree at times with his ideology. That God loved people who broke his rules. But he came to them in love. 
and he gave them dignity. And he set aside all their faults and all their differences, and he showed love. Let's finish up the story real quick right here. Let's go back right here. The Jews, therefore, this is John chapter 5, verse 10. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. The man didn't know who it was that made him well, but he knew one thing. The man, what he's basically saying is, I don't even know his name, but I know he treated me with dignity. You all never treated me with dignity. I know he gave me honor, and he treated me as someone with value. Y'all never did. Y'all treated me as I was a sinner. Back in the, in the first century, they thought if you were sick, you must have been a sinner, or your parents were sinners. You must have done something wrong. And I'm sure this guy racked his brain every day. What did I do? And his parents were probably fighting over dinner, be like, it was because you did this. No, it's because you did this. And, and, and Jesus came and said, look, I'm not blaming you. I'm not judging you. I'm helping you out. I'm giving you a hand. You're, you're in the worst situation imaginable, but I give you dignity, and I give you honor, which is more than the Pharisees ever did. Verse 12, then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. The man had lost Jesus, but Jesus never lost him. Verse 14, and afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Now, a minute ago, I said, we don't believe in that generational sin that you don't get punished for your sins. We don't believe in that, but that doesn't mean that sin doesn't lead to sickness. Like sometimes it is the sickness or it is the sin that's causing the sickness. Simple example. You drink and drive. You get in a car accident. Your illness is directly caused by your sin. Okay? So it's not to say that sin won't cause sickness. But what it is to say is that not every sickness is caused by sin. Do you see how that works? So Jesus is telling him that here, we don't know what it is. But something in his life, there was a sin that was connected to his sickness. We don't know what it was. But Jesus forgave it and said, don't do it anymore. And if truly this was a punishment, the sickness was a punishment from God, Jesus wouldn't have healed it. Right? Verse 16, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. They persecuted, they sought to kill him because he told a guy to carry his mat on the Sabbath because he loved the guy, because he gave him dignity, but he broke our rules, but he doesn't support our agenda. He's not part of our ideology, but he loved the guy. And love has to take precedence over rules, agendas, ideologies. Verse 17, and Jesus answered, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Basically saying, look, you know my father, God, he breaks your rules as well. My father's working today as well. So if you brought him down here, would you give him a ticket? And more importantly than that, he's identifying himself. This is what makes this a sign, not just a miracle. It's pointing to his identity. I am the son of of my Father in heaven. And because of that, unfortunately, Jesus came to these people in love, told them, I am the Messiah. I am the Son. I, that God that you prayed to of Moses, of Abraham, that God, that's my Father, and you should believe in me. How do you think they responded? Instead of listening, instead of believing, they got outraged, they got offended. And if they had had social media, they probably would have posted something on Twitter. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus coming to them in love, but he didn't follow their ideology. He said, he's got to go. I started off with a question. I'm going to end with a question, similar but slightly worded different. 
Does my ideology, my rules, and my agenda get in the way of loving people that God loves? Each one needs to be honest. We don't want to end up like those Pharisees, so blind that they persecuted Jesus for loving a man. Does my ideology, my rules, my agenda get in the way of loving the people that God loves? Another area, another way of saying is, what area am I missing the point? Where am I, I like the expression, majoring on the minors? Where am I focusing on the minors and missing the majors? Where am I missing the big picture? Where am I so focused on the rules, the ideology, the, love, the, the agenda that I miss loving God's people? Ask yourself specifically, and I'm, and I'm trying to, 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 to bother you, and I know, forgive me, but I'm trying to bother you. Does your version, each one asks himself, does my version of politics, does my political view give me an excuse to demean and degrade other people who don't share that view? If so, I got a problem with my politics. Does my version of religion give me an excuse to degrade and demean and curse and judge those who disagree with it or those who just haven't been told about it yet or those who grew up in households that just share different opinions? If so, you got the wrong version of religion because anything that gets in the way of loving people, if you're on the wrong side of loving people, you're on the wrong side of God. That's not a place that I want to be. Jesus made it easy for us. He said, if you want to be my disciples, I'll give you one thing to focus on. Don't focus on the rule. Don't focus on the ideology. Don't focus on the gender. He said in John 13, 35, by this, emphasis on this, by this, all will know that you are my disciples because you voted for the right or you voted for the left. Right? Is that what he's going to say? By this, they'll know you're my disciples if you voted for the right candidate. By this, all will know you're my disciples if you follow these rules. What did he say? How will people know that you're my disciples? What you post online, your view of the president, how you vote, your opinion on, on, on religion. How will people know that you are my disciples? If you, if you love one another. That's the marker. I heard a preacher say it one time, then I'm done. Went over my time. I heard a preacher say it one time. I don't know exactly how he said it, but he said something like this. He said, I don't always know what to believe. I don't always know who to believe. But I almost always know what love requires me to do. I don't know what to believe. I don't always know who to believe but I almost always know what love requires me to do in that situation. And that, my brothers and sisters, is our call. Is people one, compassion one, love one, and our rules, our agendas, and our ideologies a distant second. Let's stand for prayer. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us and you overlooking, Lord, all the things that we've done and coming down and giving us a chance to know you. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to love people with the way you love them. Give us the eyes to see the way you see, Lord, and to see all people, even when they disagree or agree with us, Lord, as made in your image and therefore worthy of the dignity which you have given to them as well. We pray this in the name of your Son, the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks again for joining us.